Welcome back to another episode of Slay House Presents. I'm your host, Trevor. My guest today does not believe in human consciousness. His works emerge as though from the ether, fully formed and fully ominous. Selections of these works can be observed in his work through Cosmic Horror Monthly, Shortwave Magazine, Chthonic Matter Quarterly, and the Best Horror of the Year, Volume 15. He exists in Columbus, Ohio. My guest today is Jacob Stephen Moore. Welcome, Jacob. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is probably the most fun I've had with an intro bio in quite a while. It's <laughs> pretty wild. Honestly, that is the goal. Because I, I knew I was going to be coming on a few of these. And I knew that like they read the bio at the beginning of all of them. And it's always like, I don't know, I, I wanted to surprise my hosts a little bit. And so far, I feel like I've succeeded. <laughs> it's fitting of your fiction, too, because I feel like I never... It, it's like I read some of your stuff and it's never the same thing twice. It's always something just a little bit uh, off kilter, <laughs> which is pretty exciting. So if you would, um, as we're kind of making some introductions, um, I'd like to get to know you a little bit through, you know, some of your writing. What are the things that really kind of grab your attention as a an artist and what are some of the the ideas or some of the themes that you feel you keep coming back to explore through your fiction if i had to sum up my you know attack on a horror i suppose in, in a few words like i i've definitely been bending recently towards what i would describe as nostalgic horror like horror that deals with childhood through a very backwards facing lens talking about how like you know our memories of our childhoods can change over time and you know hide or suppress or mask or twist you know what happened to us when we were young and impressionable and when we look back on it we can often think you know that was very strange or you know i don't think that guy was human or i was very strange as a child Th things like that now, that has not always been my focus, but I feel like that's what I've been focusing on, at least in the last six months or so, let's say. You know, I can definitely see that in the piece that you've written for this upcoming anthology, uh, mm -hmm. Dead Letters. And that's going to be something we're, we're talking about a little bit today. But, um, you know, what is your piece in Dead Letters really about? Um, my piece in Dead Letters is called Berkey Family Vacation 1988, and it is a piece of, I suppose what you could describe as analog horror. It is a subset of found footage, which specifically deals in very, very, very old media, like VHS tapes, anything that's not digital, hence the name. Uh, stuff that you would like discover on like, you know, a VHS tape of like a very, very old um, public access broadcast, for instance, which is right. what my story is. It's Interesting that you bring up, you know, kind of this format, because I do think that we're starting to see at least some more attention toward, you know, this kind of or, or reproducing this kind of experience, mm -hmm. which in and of itself is like kind of lost in this moment. Right. Mm -hmm. and we, we've made the transition into this digital media mm -hmm. where now you can get virtually any movie you want, you know, mm -hmm. on YouTube or through a streaming service somewhere. 
And the weird stuff, the really obscure hidden stuff is becoming less and less obscure. So mm-hmm. there's this, you know, kind of idea that we we can only kind of approach this esoterica if if we find, you know, like the physical remnant of, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a lost memory. It's something that I find really exciting about, you know, stuff like Shortwave is doing with mm-hmm. the um uh, killer VHS series, you know, mm-hmm. like replicating this feeling, not just of, you know, watching a B movie or something like that, but replicating the feeling of going out to a video store, you know, they ship mm-hmm. the books in a physical package, which I think transforms the experience a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't mean to make a commercial for shortwave, but you know, hey, listen, we can cut a short uh, commercial for shortwave right now. I love shortwave. Oh, I do too. I like uh I'm I'm pretty sure Alan already knows this. I'm just a huge fan of you know all they're doing. But I think it ties into you know a little bit of of this uh, you know I don't know, this impulse for analog media if that makes any sense. Uh, certainly. Um and I think that part of that is it, it it's a backlash to the digital age uh particularly the impermanence of digital. You know, we're seeing more and more that like you know, something will be released on streaming or online, and unless you have made like your own copy of it, you know, illegally, I might add. Um, not saying, not confirming or deny that I do it myself, <laughs> but because it is an impermanent, and because you know, a big company can just take it away at the drop of a hat, like for a tax break or something. Um, the the urge, the drive to hoard physical media is certainly going to come back in a big way, and this is just the first wave of it. I feel. Because we want to, we want to believe that we own the stories we love. Yeah, you know, we want to uh, collect them like dragons, essentially. And this idea that something we love is something that was maybe formative for us, something that was inspirational, something that was there when we really needed it to be there, could just be gone and put in a vault by some billionaire or some you know CEO or some someone in a stuffy boardroom somewhere is terrifying to us and that's where that's why analog horror i think is ultimately comforting because it it brings us back to this time when all of our media was in a bookcase of vhs tapes and you could just go and look at them and they were always there as the some this physical thing in your hands yeah there's oh gosh i mean that's that's all over <laughs> some of our media of the past anyway mm-hmm. you know the um the record collectors or mm-hmm. you know the the connoisseurs of vhs tapes or cassette tapes or you know what have you i, I feel like music probably gets it a lot more or, or traditionally gets that attention a lot more but i've also known a lot of professors with huge libraries of books you know or even libraries of of physical media i'm i'm i love comic books uh for a long time i was an avid collector of comic books and i find that my attentions have had to you know kind of shift because of like comics take up a lot of space and they're also very expensive but mm-hmm. I, I love this idea of like the impermanence of um, digital media and the need for, you know, kind of like a, a restoration of the the physical text, you know, like, mm-hmm. like, the you know, the book, not just as idea, but the book as, you know, kind of like a physical item, you know, the, mm-hmm. a, a, a token, a, an, an icon, you know, whatever, whatever we want to call it. And, and 
how these objects become imbued with more power mm -hmm. um, because of their, you know, kind of physical presence. Oh, and you know why they, they gain so much power for us, I think, especially over time, is that physical media, like, physically changes. We were talking about uh, the impermanence of digital, but there's also, in, in a backwards sort of way, a permanence to it as well. Like, you know, the the movie you watch on Netflix today, if it's on Netflix 10 years from now, will be the same movie. But the CD you had as a kid that stayed in your your car because you didn't have an aux cable or bluetooth for a long time you know that cd 10 years later is going to sound different you know the physical deterioration of physical media is what i think gives it its character the pop and crackle of vinyl the the hiss of you know cassette tapes the scratchiness of an old cd of course the the visual distortion of vhs that we seem to love so much in analog horror all of that only happens because the art exists in a physical form. It reminds me of this uh, kind of age-old conundrum of, you know, like, what is the aura of art? Walter Med Benjamin wrote this essay called, or, or Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. And the, the concept that he's really playing with is this idea that there is no such thing as, you know, like a singular art as object. Um, when it comes to reproducing things uh, mechanically, he's talking specifically about, you know, the ability to make copies of something um, mm -hmm. and the way that photography, you know, really kind of changed our perception of the art world. Because mm -hmm. with photography, you you literally can take a moment and then reproduce that moment, you know, billions of times. Um, this happens a lot with other forms of art too you know can you have something that's called an original copy i mean that in and of itself is kind of um an oxymoron mm -hmm. so you know how do we restore art or, or an aura to art when we've taken what is so many times a singular object you know a singular uh piece and we just reproduce it massively so that it is everywhere you know what happens to a picture when we turn it into a billboard and plaster it again you know across 50 states does it have the same artistic impact or is there something missing in the exchange when we do that sort of thing this is going to sound like a wishy-washy answer it is not meant to be i think it's going to depend on you know how it is reproduced and how the reproduction process transforms it because i it, it would it would be so easy to say that oh it, like you know copies of copies of copies are just like a watered down version and when you put a photo on a billboard it loses something but you know its its function has changed its form has changed and not just diminished um perhaps it has found some greater purpose there as well the when queen was recording bohemian rhapsody um and it was you know in the the 70s i think i'm going to sound really stupid if it wasn't um and they re-recorded those tapes so many times that the 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 original copy um as you said had worn wore so thin that even though it was the first version of bohemian rhapsody the process of you know distributing it essentially like creating those copies of copies of copies 
pretty much destroyed it. It's unlistenable now, and it was unlistenable even in that year. So I might have lost my train of thought a little bit. <laughs> but my, yeah. my point is that you know to bring that song, that art piece, into its its full form, you know, produced for the masses so that people could hear it, the original had to be destroyed or diminished in some capacity. Mm. Well, I think too, you know, to your point about you know taking like a cassette tape and you play it over and over, and in ten years that cassette tape sounds very differently than it sounded, you know, right out of the box. Perhaps the deterioration of an item or an object, you know, lends a kind of credibility or lends an aura back to it. You know, yeah, sure, it may have come off a production line identical to so many others, but after your use of it, you know, after your treatment of it, you kind of imbue it back with a power through its own deterioration and use. Like, isn't that the wonder of? having your own used copy of like you know frankenstein that you've read so many times that it's literally mm -hmm. falling apart and you don't replace it because to replace it would be to kind of like betray your i don't know your your literary origins or or what have you i would certainly agree you know it, it's not just that it has deteriorated is that you have deteriorated it through use essentially there are hmm. Not to wax too poetic, but there are memories in those little rips and dog ears and the the break of the spine. Um, yeah, that is that is your copy, and you've created a, a deeper bond with the. I sound very Mad Men here. Uh, you've created a deeper bond with the product. <laughs> no, but I think you're right. Uh, <laughs> I love this conversation. I I think you're right. You know when 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 we do this sort of thing to our own media, you know, we, we kind of are in conversation with our former selves. It's a form of time travel that is really uh, kind of wonderful. If you think about it, um, I grew up watching star Wars probably every day. <laughs> and absolutely. If you watch my old VHS tape copy of star Wars, you can see like you can hear through the deterioration of certain parts of the tape mm -hmm. where I rewound to rewatch certain scenes over and over and over again. And in a way that is kind of giving you a glimpse into, you know, the obsessions of my youth, the, the things mm -hmm. that most captured my, my attention, my brain, the things that I wanted to linger on the longest exist mm -hmm. in the dips of that tape. I had a high school English teacher named Miss Cherry. And all of her books that she had on her shelves were very heavily annotated by her. And so, like, not only did she have, like, you know, a, a story that she loved, but she had the particular notes that she had made about the story, her thoughts in the moment of reading it for the first or second or fifth or twelfth time. A big reader, Miss Cherry was. Um, so, you know, she had taken an active role in the, the transformation of, you know, her copy of this particular, you know, media or book. Um, and I think it was a very similar thing to your copy of Star Wars, where you could tell, like, what what chapters, what scenes, what lines were most beloved, because she would call your attention to it. You know, those, um, those, those markings in the pages were not just for her. She knew that, you know, she had a very a fatalistic sense about her she knew that she would pass on and one day someone else would inherit these books and you know a a piece of her 
you know, her thoughts would live on in these books, even though she didn't write them. It's really beautiful. Um, I have the same thoughts about a lot of library books that I check out. You know, sometimes you'll you'll come across a library book that has a whole bunch of underlinings or, mm-hmm. you know, stuff written in the margins. Um, marginalia itself is such a fascinating field of study in its own mm-hmm. right, because it is kind of this strange conversation with a person that you have no real knowledge of, um, mm-hmm. a person you don't know. Um, and yet you're having this kind of communal experience through the physical item that is passed through your care, whether mm-hmm. it be um, a more permanent care for a longer period of time or a more temporary care. Honestly, uh, marginalia is perhaps one of the most underused forms of epistolary fiction, like because it is like like all epistolary fiction, a conversation between you know, the reader and someone who wrote something for someone else that they may never see again. I absolutely want to see more of that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You've brought up an idea, I think, for epistolary fiction. Um, Have you read House of Leaves? I I have. Yes, I have. Um, One of the great examples. Yeah, we. I think I've heard it explained like hyperlink fiction. Um, you know, this idea of like just just like a like a a, a massive black hole of just mm-hmm. like like self referential ideas over and over mm-hmm. and over again. But yeah, you're right. Um, House of I never thought of House of Leaves in that that capacity, but uh, that makes a lot of sense. I did bring you here today to talk about epistolary fiction. We haven't really quite gotten entirely to your project. We, we've nibbled the margins, I think, and now we can just like dive into the into the center a little bit. Yeah, we're primed for it. So mm-hmm. you have most recently edited a book called Dead Letters, and uh, it's coming out from Crystal Lake Publishing. It is a collection of new epistolary fiction from a whole bunch of writers from across horror. Some of them more established, some some of them a little bit less established. So I first kind of want to hear like what, what compelled you to start looking for epistolary fiction to kind of collect for an anthology? Because epistolary fiction is not necessarily super en vogue. Well, I think you might have just answered your own question there. Um, it was not super in vogue, or at least not publicly. I had a sense that it was kind of bubbling under a little bit, um, and it was about ready to like have just a little bit of heat turned on it, get ready to boil. I had really fallen in love with it about, well, I've been working on this project for almost a year, so I'm going to say two years ago. I began really writing it in a big way. Uh, my piece that's going to appear in the new Ellen Detlow anthology at at the end of this year or the beginning of next year um is was one of my first like big stabs at epistolary fiction and I, I really fell in love with it I just adored this idea like you said of there being this kind of one-way conversation between the, the writer and usually an unintended reader because un and I, I've said this to a few other people that unlike a lot of other fiction epistolary fiction is not written for the reader it has an intended recipient and the intended recipient is never you you are the voyeur you know you are the intruder in this story you know to read epistolary fiction is this it is this transgression essentially against someone that you'll never know but it is a very very small crime in a way and 
to to make people engage with a text on that level just fascinated and enthralled me. And I began writing, writing more and more and more of it and experimenting with forms and eventually decided, what the hell, I want to make some of my friends uh, write some of this and invite a whole bunch of other goobers in on it. And Crystal Lake Publishing, uh, against their better judgment, said, sure, why not? And... <laughs> here we are a little bit over a year later it comes out in four days now and it will be unleashed on the world and may god have mercy on all of us yeah so just to clarify the date that this one comes out is december 1st december 1st but if you're listening to this now it's out and it's Mm -hmm. wonderful i've been (laughs) privileged to read it for uh the last several weeks i've been reading it and I think every time I come into a new story, I think about just how really wonderful and pliable this form is, you know, to kind of create uh, an, a very atmospheric piece of horror. So what I, are some stories wanted... that stuck out to you? If you don't mind my asking. Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, Gemma Files, for sure. Um, there's something about that story because Gemma Files writes a story about Uh, Basically, someone on the internet uh, is listening to a podcast and they discover this one particular episode that is missing from the listing of the podcast. And and so the whoever it is that is looking for this episode uh, does this kind of deep dive, starts paying Mm -hmm. people to try to find it for her. And someone finds a transcript online of the episode and transmits it back. And it's this horrible little piece of cursed media that (laughs) asks these gigantic kind of cosmic level questions about life and death and our relationship to these cycles of, of, uh, you know, being a human being. It is existential. It is terrifying. It is uh, (laughs) just an absolute marvel. I really, really loved that. Um, to your credit, I really enjoyed your story a whole Thank lot. Thank you very much. Um, it was a very, very good story. I also loved the piece from Emily Ruth Verona in here. Um, that one is uh, like about a, a girl who's just kind of growing up and she's basically admitting all of her sins to this uh, hole in the wall that originally would collect razor blades and someone mm-hmm. unearths all of the letters that her are her kind of admissions of of the guilt of things she's done in her life and it's to cut in a little bit there um that was i i had forgotten to mention this earlier that is the other key element of epistolary fiction in my opinion is not just the text itself but like how it is discovered how it has been preserved Mm. and that was an instruction i gave to my authors is like if you can you know you know tell me the story but also tell me like where did the story come from? How was it? How was it? How did it come to me? Essentially, like, let's role play this a little bit. Yeah, it it creates a really interesting, I don't know, an interesting idea about you know the the world that we may not see or the world that we don't quite understand, and it brings me to some of the questions that I wanted to put in front of you, which is you know this is a a genre that I think is quite com- familiar to a lot of us because it was super popular in the 18th and 19th centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of is the the genesis of a lot of what we consider to be the horror genre. Mm-hmm. You know, think about 
a foundational text like Frankenstein. And mm-hmm. that book opens with a letter mm-hmm. that contains a story that was told to the person who wrote the letter. Mm-hmm. We see in Dracula, Dracula is all just a collection of letters and missives and diary and journal entries as these characters are trying to figure out who Dracula is. Mm-hmm. And I find it really fascinating that we've for some reason steered away from this in more recent horror but then we see it come back in other kind of different forms so i mm-hmm. i guess my first question just to lay some ground is like what is it that endures about this form of storytelling publishing has tried to move away from it Mm-hmm. And yet we still see that there is a craving for it. We still see that there's a, a want for it. You know, Eric LaRocca um, is a great example. You know, Absolutely. he blew up with uh, things have gotten worse mm-hmm. since we last spoke. The <laughs> biggest dickless moment on Twitter when uh, this is how you lose the time war blew up. Uh, mm-hmm. That's an, a, another amazing epistolary novel. Clearly, there's a a readership that is very hungry for these kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of want to pick your brain, like, why <laughs> over over this, the course of two or 300 years, why do we keep coming back to these kinds of stories or this structure of storytelling? Well, I've thought about that for a while, like, because I had, of course, my own fascination with it. And I wanted to understand my fascination with it. And what I ultimately lit upon is that epistolary fiction is first and foremost about communication or attempts at communication human beings we have a need to communicate you know we have a language center in our brain for a reason um and so i think it becomes scary to us because communication is so vital if we are unable to or if our communication is lost or misinterpreted or is unsuccessful in some way and what makes epistolary horror scary in my opinion is that by its nature it must be unsuccessful a lot of them you know a lot of the stories in dead letters are warnings saying hey like this is what happened this is you know meant to survive me essentially you know don't go in the house like or don't read this like this is this has become cursed don't you know read any farther than this and of course you know we being the stupid readers that we are, we do because we have to find out, you know, we are, again, we're, like I said before, we're participating at that point. And I, to, to go a little further into that, um, unlike a lot of other forms of fiction, epistolary fiction, not even just horror, is not constructed a lot of times as a narrative. It only becomes a narrative by our reading it and interpreting it as such. And because we are engaging with it on this deeper level, it has this, I think, unique hold on us. I I, I kind of want to hear from you as a follow-up. You know, what, what makes for a compelling epistolary story? Um, what, what are kind of the mechanical components, do you think, that uh, connect us to the story and really work its magic on us? First of all, as I said before, I think it can't just be the document itself. It needs to have been like discovered or unearthed or given to someone in a unique way, and that needs to be part of the story. Yeah, we're bringing the the physical 
you know, the, the physical into it a little bit. Um, number two, I think that whatever story you're telling, it needs to need to be epistolary. Like it, it can't be a choice that you make after the fact. You need to go into it. It's like, I want to tell the story this way because mm. this is the only way the story can be told. Number three, and this was something that I looked for when I was doing uh, submissions for this. I had to mm-hmm. read, you know, 300 plus stories that were all epistolary. <laughs> right. And a lot of them begin, you know, you know, the detectives found the body and this is the transcript. You need to use the form in a unique way. Letters are all well and good. Journals are all well and good. And we've got letters and journals in this book, of course. We're not going to put an epistolary book out without <laughs> them. But we've also got like with Gemma Files, we got podcast transcripts. We have whatever the fuck Gordon B. White did in his story. <laughs> that was another standout story. <laughs> We've got notes tied to arrows sticking out of chests. <laughs> yes, phantom emails and uh... <laughs> I, I think I, I remember like sending him just like a like a DM on Twitter because he sent that and it was like in the middle of the night and I sent back Gordon, what the fuck. <laughs> <laughs> all lowercase no punctuation you know laughing crying emoji comes back from him it's uh <laughs> yeah what a what a story i feel like that is a, a very singularly uh gordon b white story <laughs> if you've read any of his other stuff uh it's it is a very very much a special <laughs> special story it might um, well be the gordon b white story he goes off the rails so quickly <laughs> he's one of the few authors that i know that is willing to use humor to that degree in a horror mm. story or a piece of weird media it cut me up so much as i was reading it because it is very very funny but but he also again he he does he's not afraid of playing with big weird crazy ideas mm-hmm. in a way that still feels fundamentally human and profound mm-hmm to have these strange little philosophical questions just sprinkled in like 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 little ticking time bombs mm-hmm. and, and once you find them and then still weave that in with a story that it's just kind of all sorts of, of absurd yeah he it's a remix of itself almost oh yes it's great it really is very fun speaking of gordon b white you know what are some ways that that you think that this form still has left to innovate? Well, I think that as the way we humans communicate continues to change and mutate, like you said, um, there will be kind of a, a commensurate you know, rise in the, the permutations of epistolary fiction. You know, I hesitate to speculate on what that will look like, um, but I, I think that you know, people who come after me will find new essential pieces of it. Like, you know, I think, for instance, that an essential piece of it is how the documents were discovered. Somebody will have their own element like that that they will add to it that will become like a new essential. Now, I am not clever enough to speculate what that could be, but I really look forward to seeing it so I can uh, copy off their notes, essentially. <laughs> so for those who you know, maybe are thinking about writing epistolary fiction. What What's some advice that maybe you would give them? You know, what, what makes an epistolary story really good and what makes a epistolary story, you know, like kind of uh, 
not necessarily bad, but you know, maybe what, what doesn't move the needle for you so much? I can tell you one mark of a story, an epistolary story that's not going to be terribly successful in my eyes, at least. And that is one that uses the trappings of the form. But like if you're writing, say you're writing a story that takes the form of letters. If the narrative does not feel like a letter, it needs to feel authentic. This is a genre or a subgenre that absolutely demands total authenticity mm. and you know, to your earlier point, you know, if I had advice to give to somebody who's going to start writing epistolary fiction or horror, that would be read some actual letters. Like, like go, go right to the source. Go right to the the main vein. You know, look at your own communication. How do you write when you're not trying to tell a story? You know, what are what is the casual way that you speak? Um, you'll hear about writers who will like sit in parks and just like listen to conversations and like pick up like the real music of human speech for the dialogue do the same thing with digital media or emails or letters or or smoke signals or what have you mm. make it real would be my advice as a reader i know i absolutely love um when something i'm reading kind of takes on a different form than just mm -hmm. you know kind of the straight uh paragraph on a page you, mm -hmm. you know kind of formatting um, you know, so for example, uh, Patrick Barb has a really great story in this, um, anthology mm -hmm. that includes a lot of text messaging mm -hmm. and, um, there's kind of, you a say a lot of it's entirely text it, messaging, it, it, yeah. which is for me, a real excitement to read. I, I love to read things where it, there's absolutely kind of a layer to the conversation where you're seeing, the the story unfold on two separate sides of a conversation you know mm -hmm. like in a text message mm -hmm. <laughs> you have you know um someone writing on one side and someone writing on the other side of your screen um and i feel like that gives a kind of uh, both a context but it also gives um it, it is form as text you know like mm -hmm. like form as content and mm -hmm. I, I just love that as a reader. Like I love the verisimilitude of having something that looks like the thing it's trying to mimic. I, and you want to talk about authenticity. Like, did he not capture the way that teens text each other? Oh, it's, it's great. Misspellings and everything. Um, mm -hmm. The creative choices that he makes deliberately to get into a specific kind of voice uh, mm -hmm. is really wonderful. And I think that that for me is what sets up you know a really good epistolary story like i think it's all about voice you know if you don't have characters who sound very different in their missives to one another mm -hmm. if you don't have something that sounds very tonally different um especially if you're having multiple characters conversing with one another you know you've kind of like failed your reader it, it there's not mm -hmm. enough diversity in there to lend itself to that authenticity that you're talking about 100 percent agree well hey if you want to talk about uh like strong voices uh liam hogan's in the event like now that one does not flip-flop in between voices but that one singular narrator has such a strong voice that you can see, you can see that man. I found myself just so surprised by the variety of stories in here. Um, it really doesn't, it's not just, you know, dead letters, so to speak. 
there are all kinds of different stories contained in here that play with both the concept of you know an epistolary story but but really like what kind of stories can be told through mm-hmm. these varying formats you know um like uh with Patrick Barb you know how how would a story that is entirely based in texts unfold how do you convey information to a reader in a way that that spells out an actual plot without just explicitly over explaining in a way Mm -hmm. that is inauthentic to the form you know And, and I think that for me I was surprised at how just absolutely brilliant story after story was in this collection it was a real joy to read them, of course. Um, yeah, I, like I said, we we got three hundred of these um, in the course of two months or so, and every anthologist said this, but like it was so brutal to have to like cut some of these because I, you know, I had limited space, had limited funds to work with. This was some of the the saddest killing your darlings I think I've ever done. <laughs> So with regards to your editorial presence in the book, because I know that you have a story in here, mm-hmm. um, but but you also, you know, kind of curated this election. You know, what were some of the concerns that you had as an editor to try to bring some of these stories into line with your vision for what the book could accomplish? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I can say that my vision for the book changed over the course of the two months. Um you know, I, I know if I can really verbalize what I pictured the book looking like, it was not quite what it turned out to be. I think that what we have is better. I think that I had initially a very staid and boring vision of this you know, compared to what it is now. Um, but because of that, I tried not to let my own you know, editorial and even authorial voice interfere too much with the stories. Um most of them really do not have that many changes made to them other than like you know, some grammar stuff, some tightening, a little bit of rewriting here and there. Um, honestly, I don't think that it, 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 this might be a little bit shameful to say. I don't know if I have so much of a presence in this one, like other than the curating and of mm-hmm. course the story that I have in there. Um, so many of these came so fully formed to my doorstep. They didn't really need me at all. There's so much talent in this this anthology. I I really I can't, I can't overstate uh, my enthusiasm for it. Um, it it just is such a uh, it is such a a wonderful collection of uh, bizarre little compelling you know fiction. It 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 manages to continue to kind of hit on some big human themes that I find really fascinating in very unique voices that showcase all of your authors' um, craft. I, I think like it's a very craftful book. Well, for those of our listeners who are interested in finding more about your uh, future projects or more about your work, mm-hmm. um, where can people find you online? Uh, I am at Jacob Stephen Moore pretty much everywhere. And if I'm not there, it's because I don't exist on that platform. Thank you so much for coming on today and for um, sharing your brain with me. I I feel like uh, I got to nerd out a little bit and uh, it's really delightful to be able to do that with someone sometimes. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. This was really great fun.